Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with lawyer Brian Stevenson. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hi. 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 Is, is Brian here? Yes, this is... Hi, Brian. Hi, how are you? (laughs) Okay, all right. Okay, so, Brian, they say they want me to turn my cam off. Yeah, we're all about the spoken word here. There you go. (laughs) Works for me. (laughs) Sure. I think he's a pro. (laughs) (laughs) I think you know how to direct yourself towards the microphone. (laughs) It's so nice to hear your voice. Oh, you too. I um, I I've been looking forward to this for such a long time, and I always, um, you know, I've been I've been following your work for such a long time, and I also felt like you were really good at getting your message out there. Right, and so I wanted—I knew I wanted to interview you at some point, but but um, maybe when there was something that that I wanted to just kind of talk about, you know, maybe places you didn't you didn't go so yeah. well, and then here we are with the world <laughs> completely upended in some ways. <laughs> so yeah, and it was just so lovely to meet you that day briefly with yeah, Stephen and Kate. Absolutely. Um, are you in Montgomery now? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, and if someone had told me eight months ago, oh, you're going to be in your own bed, you're not going to be <laughs> I traveling, I, I would have said, oh, that sounds so nice. I'll be so rested and <laughs> non-stressed out. And of course, it's been the exact opposite experience. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. I've had the same experience that um, just the, the arc of the way I, I ran, lived my life utterly yeah. changed. Yeah. Um. Okay, so so Zach, you're saying we can start before we say anything that we want to capture? Yes? Okay. All right. Okay. Um, well, Brian, I, you know, I, I was very intrigued when I went, went back to Just Mercy, um, getting ready to speak with you, that I had forgotten that you have, you quote Reinhold Niebuhr. At the beginning of the book, the uh, the the public theologian of the last century, um, yeah. saying love love is the motive, but justice is the instrument, and I feel like that's something you didn't learn at law school, <laughs> but that came from the from your life. Um, so yeah, I mean, tell I, I, I what. I, I, I've, you write about this to some extent, but if I just ask you, you know, really to tell me about the religious background of your childhood, um, where would you begin to talk about that? Well, in many ways, I think it's the uh, background of my family and a larger segment of the of the black community, the black mm-hmm. experience. And um, I appreciate you asking about that quote because... I think I've increasingly recognized that we have to be intentional and explicit Mm 
in our affirmation of the power of love. Mm. I don't think it often comes up when we talk about um, these dynamics that are so critical. Yeah, serious things. Yeah, <laughs> but in recent years, I really have been talking about it more and more and more. And mm. what's interesting is that when I grew up, I never really talked much about my family. I didn't talk much about background or anything. You know, you're in the middle of trying to navigate all of these challenges. Um, you know, as I've said before, I started my education in a colored school, and we yeah. were just trying to navigate the challenges of integration. And But for me, it really begins with this larger family narrative. My great-grandfather was enslaved in Caroline County, Virginia, and learned to read while enslaved. Mm. And I never really thought about that until later, but I, I'm, I just started thinking about the kind of hope, the kind of vision it took to believe that one day you're going to be free, even when nothing around you indicates that freedom is likely for enslaved black people in Virginia in the 1850s. Mm, yeah. We and don't think had, about that, do we? That they no, couldn't see the beyond of it. Exactly. Yeah. And yet he had that hope and he learned to read. And he loved it so much that um, he wanted to share it with others. And my grandmother would talk about how after emancipation, other formerly enslaved people would come to their home and he would stand up and read the newspaper each night. And she would sit next to him because she loved the power he had to engage people, to make people feel calmer or more informed. Mm -hmm. And she would use that word love. <laughs> and uh, she was born in the 1880s at a time when Reconstruction had collapsed. There was a lot of terrorism and violence and lynching. And millions of black people started fleeing the South uh, for communities in the North and West. And she joined that great migration, ended up in Philadelphia. And despite, you know, having enslaved parents and the terror of lynching, um, married my grandfather and had 10 children. And I've been thinking about what kind of love or hope does it take to bring 10 children into a world yeah. where black people are menaced and threatened and marginalized and excluded. And my mom was the uh, youngest of her 10 kids. And um, she had a really intense love dynamic going on. And she created that for me as well. And all of my people were people of faith. They taught me that you have to believe things you haven't seen. That was their life mm -hmm. narrative. And um, that shaped my growing up. My mother, um, no one in my family had gone to college, but my mother really believed that her children we're going to go to college, <laughs> even though <laughs> nobody else had done that. And, you know, we were poor. Uh, but my mom went into debt uh, to buy the World Book Encyclopedia because she wanted us to have this portal. And I now mm. see that as an act of love, of real um, generosity. And so yeah. that very much shaped my world. And I, I've, I've now recognized, you know, that love was the motive for so much of the struggle. I think about emancipated black people at the end of the Civil War who had been brutalized and assaulted and abused and humiliated. And they had every right to want retribution, to want revenge against enslavers who had tortured and denied them their humanity for so long. And instead, most of them embraced this hope of community. They said, we'll just, we just want to live peaceably with you. Yeah. And even when they did that, they were rejected and they were terrorized and lynched. And, and you keep asking the question, why would people continue to seek community, 
to reject violence, to push against hate. And I, I'm persuaded it's because there was an understanding that you can't love, you can't give to people, you can't give to your children, you can't be healthy and whole and human mm-hmm. if you give in to those emotions. And that love is the motive for the justice that we seek, the equality we seek, the hope we have. And it has absolutely shaped my work more and more. Mm. Yeah, you 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 quote your grandmother a lot. She's very quotable. She was clearly <laughs> a very formidable woman. Um, I think you know something that you said. Well, two things that really stuck out at me, um, jumped out at me. Um, always do the right thing, even when the right thing is the hard thing. Yeah. Um, and also, also, how she would always say to you, Brian, do you still still feel me hugging you? <laughs> so beautiful. It is. And powerful. Yeah. I, she had a very long view. I think she understood the power of an eternal witness. I mean, that's the thing yeah. I appreciate about my grandmother. She actually interacted with us in this way that was meant to be eternal, that we were supposed to remember mm. her and think about her and oh. honor her. Oh, I just I've got lost. a weird signal. Am I still uh, Zach, with you? did you? Hello? Oh, no. All right. Okay. 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 They were at Eternal. Hello? Hi, Mary. Would you page Brian and ask him to come back to his office, please? Thanks. So can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes. Did, okay. Did, did you hear yourself drop, or did you, did we go away? Yeah, the screen just said. Oh, okay. Uh, session lost. All right. And I was I didn't hear anybody speaking back okay. when I asked questions, All so right. I assume that. Uh, but I but we're back. Okay. 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 Um, Zach, can we? Are we still recording? Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> I remember one of the last words you said was eternal. Yeah. That's what <laughs> well, yeah. well, I guess what I yeah. was saying is that, that my grandmother had this mm-hmm. uncanny instinct for creating relationships that were eternal. I, I, in retrospect, I feel like she wanted us to never forget her, to never... Uh, think of her as this person we had a relationship with for a short period of time, but mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. she wanted us to embrace her and to carry her with us. And um, I, I think she was brilliant at achieving that in both the things she said, but also in the things she did. Um, I mean, she was uh, 40 when my mom was born and um, 70 when I was born. And mm. so mm. I don't know that she was thinking about it through that lens. She had a lot of grandchildren. She had a lot of children. But I so value these people. And I meet a lot of older black people in particular that seem to have that instinct for creating these um, memories that that just shape you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And and they have a way of um, creating, making these impressions. You know, I was just in a uh, fast food place just to pick up some food, and this 
pandemic, you don't go inside and eat. And so I just picked it. But there was a group of uh, black women sitting outside and, and um, you know, with a movie and things like that. And I just get stopped a lot more. And one of the older women said, um, Brian Stevenson, I know who you are. You come over here. And, <laughs> <laughs> and she was precious. And I said, OK. And she said, now bend over, bend over, bend over. And so I did. And she just leaned up and kissed me on the forehead. And she said, that's all I want to do. Now, you go on, keep working. I just want you to know you're doing great things. And it was just this sort of precious thing that you don't forget. (laughs) And and it takes a certain kind of spirit to be generous with who you are Mm -hmm. and your capacity to shape and encourage and affirm. And my grandmother had that. Uh, I think knowing what her parents lived through in enslavement Seeing what she saw as a child in the post-Reconstruction era with terror and violence, uh, growing up uh, uh, kind of marginalized and excluded, uh, I think she just had a a certain wisdom, and she wanted us to be equipped uh, to to use that wisdom in whatever Mm, way possible. mm -hmm. But yeah, she very much was that kind of person. (laughs) So, yeah, so you you speak occasionally— uh, and I think very much these days about that long arc of the moral universe, that mm. that sense of time and that sense of the work ahead of us um, <clears throat> generationally in this country, in our world, too, but in this country. And I just, I do feel like that is in relief now. Yeah. Um, and... So, you know, what I what I really want to do as we as we keep speaking here for this hour or so is is really draw out your perspective on that um uh through the particular place that you have inhabited in your work and in our society, you know, where you've been proximate to use your language. Yeah. Right? And it it seems to me that um you know, it seems to me that uh, that a tr- the trajectory of your work f- from that day as a second year law student is that right in yeah. ni- 1983 that you that you entered into this month long internship and there's something about how you write about that story and tell about that story that's so familiar to I think me or almost anybody thinking about being at that age. Yeah. Um, you didn't feel at all qualified. In fact, you knew you were not qualified <laughs> to walk into that into that experience. And yet, it 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 it, it led you into your vocation. And um, you know, who would have known that you would you would you would meet somebody on death row, and later learn that you had a, a talent for death penalty litigation, which is some way <laughs> way people describe you. But but you know you didn't. Um, so you met this, and you met this one man named Walter McMillan, who yeah. also the force of his person was was also that transformative piece. But it just seems to me that you know you then you you started the Equal Justice Initiative. But you know, at, when did you start the Equal Justice Initiative? When did that? That was in 1989. Okay, so so you graduated from law school, realized that this was your calling, and kept going. But it feels to me like if you look at it, stepping back, it's been this constant. It's it's been getting proximate, mm-hmm. and then pushing closer and closer 
to what are the root causes? What's what's behind this, and and kind of and kind of this relentless moving towards the heart of the matter and yeah. wanting to address this? Because because you could could you have ever imagined when you started the Equal Justice Initiative, um, which was about being a lawyer and working with people on death row, <clears throat> that you would you know that then today somebody would go to your website and. And there's a memorial and there's a museum, <laughs> right? And so I just, I'm curious if you reflect at this move on, on that evolution. Um, yeah. What's that been about at heart? You know, it's a, such a terrific question because you're absolutely right. Uh, this has definitely been a journey um, of discovery. And you learn something new, you discover something new, and you want to get to the heart of it because you want to be effective. Had we succeeded with just providing legal services to people and achieving the things that we thought needed to be achieved, uh, we wouldn't have kept looking. But of course, that wasn't sufficient. Mm-hmm. And so you keep digging. And um, it very much has been a journey. Uh, I went to law school because I was concerned about the poor. I wanted to do something about racial inequality and injustice. And as you describe, I wasn't really hearing that or finding that in my first year of law school. And when I got to uh, this course that took me to Georgia and, and I met this person on death row, it just seemed like all of these things started to become clear. Uh, you know, I, I didn't appreciate until I got there that we had people on death row in this country who were literally dying for legal assistance. I hadn't thought about the humanity of the condemned. I just thought about the legal issues. And I think like most Americans uh, who listen to debates about crime and crime policy, uh, I had been sort of pulled in this direction in thinking about the propriety of sentences as if we put crimes in jails and prisons. And that's the way politicians talk. And that's the way the law has really evolved. If you look at these laws and you say, oh, life without parole for this and 60 years for that, it's easy to pass a law if you think you're punishing a crime. If you can put a crime in prison, then of course life without parole or even the death penalty might make sense. And you don't actually question that. I didn't in, in a serious way until I got to death row. And what I realized in an instant is that we don't put crimes in prison in this country. We can't put a crime in jail. We put people in jail. We put people in in prison. And people are not crimes. They can commit crimes, but they're not crimes. And the things that are not crimes about that person are the things you encounter. And when you begin to encounter (laughs) that, it just just changes your thinking. Mm. And you leave and you say, oh, my God, they're not actually going to kill this human being who is saying all of these things. And and I think that then takes you into a journey. And then you want to understand the other things that people are. And then I started learning about the burden of people who suffer from mental illness, uh, who suffer from trauma disorders, and how that burden can manifest in acts of violence uh, that are tragic, uh, but are rooted in uh, these untreated illnesses. And, and of course, you can't then just keep talking about the act. You want to talk about mental illness. You want to talk about okay. trauma. Uh, and then you learn about the consequences of extreme poverty. And I think so few people in this country know what it's like to be extremely poor, right? We have moments of deprivation, many of us, but extreme poverty, the kind of poverty where um, you don't get to eat anything all day, where you don't mm-hmm. actually know 
um, where your next meal is going to come from and the, and the distortions that creates in a very affluent society like ours. Mm-hmm. And then with my work with children, right. um, and then you, know, it, you yeah. know, confronting that. So, yeah, it's been a discovery. And so we, you know, we started out just representing people on death row, really just getting involved uh, when people had execution dates. And then we stepped back from that. We said, no, we've got to represent people earlier in the process. And I did that for a decade. And then I realized that the courts were actually responding more harshly to cases where someone had been sentenced to death because of the politics of that than they would in non-capital cases. And so we started taking on non-capital cases to get the court to confront the problems of the poor and our indigent defense system and the problems of race and the problems of unfairness. And then it just kept expanding and expanding. And then we took on children. And then we took on people who were innocent, who were not on death row, but wrongly convicted. Right. And it just kept growing. And 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 I would not have imagined that today, you know, we I'd be kind of working on a museum, a memorial, and these reports. But it really was about a decade ago, I guess, or maybe 12 years ago, um, that I began to question. Um <laughs> Did I lose you? No, again? no. I thought I did, but no. We're, I'm still here. Okay. Yeah. Good. Uh, uh, it was about 12 years ago that I really began qu- questioning this commitment to law. And just for context, you know, I went into law because I was very aware, even as a child uh, in the 1960s, that if you had a vote on ending racial segregation in my community. Uh, black people would have lost that vote. The black, black community was only like 20% of the population. The majority of people did not want racial segregation to end. And it took these lawyers mm. to come in to disrupt that. And I love the power those lawyers had to mm. protect vulnerable populations, even though we didn't have majority support. And that's why I kind of wanted law. And that's what I've relied on to represent people on death row and people in jails and prisons. If you had you know, votes on what should happen to a lot of my clients, they would not fare well uh, because we're not shaped to kind of ask these hard questions. But it was about 12 years ago that I really began to question whether the law was enough. And it was largely triggered by this awakening that even though I'm a product of Brown versus Board of Education, huh. about 12 years ago, I've, I realized that I don't think we could win Brown versus Board of Education today. Oh, gosh. I don't, I don't think our court would do anything that disruptive on behalf of disfavored people, on right. behalf of marginalized people. And that terrified me. Right. But it also energized me to recognize that we were going to have to get outside the court and create a different consciousness. The question for me is, why wouldn't we win? And it's because we haven't really reckoned with these larger issues of what it means to be a country dealing with our history of racial well, inequality. Right. And, you know, what what you... I think that language you used about um, even you, because you are a product of this culture as well, when yeah. you thought about people in prison, you, you didn't think about their humanity. You thought about what they'd done and even how we use, I mean, you speak a lot about the narrative, right? Like even yeah. how we use the language of, uh, you know, it, it's not somebody who stole something. It's a, it's a thief, right? right. It, it's a murderer, um, yeah. And and to say, I think importantly that you know your your grandfather was murdered by some young people. Right. I mean, you've known that the other end of that, and yet now then you got to know uh, what, what you uncovered in in the way we we treat children, um, in the way we the the punitive nature of of our society and how that shows up in the 
in the justice system. I know, isn't that interesting language? That right, that it's the justice yeah. system, um, um, and also, um, you know, somewhere you said, you know, slavery. You started to see that slavery doesn't end; it evolves, and that, mm. and you go back to lynching, and there's this presumptive criminality just by virtue of being black that then turns up in who is in our prisons and who's on death row. And what you uncover is this callousness, extreme callousness and coarseness and dehumanization that is so at odds with, you know, who we want to think of ourselves and want to be, I believe, um, as a country. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're right. And and I think a lot of it has to do with how we're governed, how we're acculturated. I think in the 1970s, part of what happened is that our political leaders began um, relying on the politics of fear and anger as a way of shaping policy. And so we declare this misguided war on drugs. We say that people who are drug drug dependent and drug addicted are criminals. And we're going to use the criminal justice system to respond to that problem. Now, we could have said and should have said that people suffering from addiction and dependency have a health problem Mm -hmm. and we need a health care response. But that's not going to generate the kind of energy that demonizing people for addiction will. And so fear and anger began to shape the policy discourse. And you see that throughout the 80s and the 90s. That's how we got to the point where we were putting people in prison forever, life without parole for writing a bad check. I've represented people who are serving life without parole uh, for Mm. simple possession of marijuana, taking away the minimum age of trying children as adults. When you step back and you think about it, it makes no sense. And there are 13 states today that have no minimum age for trying a child as an adult. And you can't really rationalize that unless you are distracted by these narratives of fear and anger. And, And I think that is part of the condition that gives rise to the brutality and the cruelty that I've seen in my work, and of course, when you are governed by fear and anger, when you're shaped by fear, you tolerate things you would never otherwise tolerate. You yeah. accept things you would never otherwise accept. If you go anywhere in the world where people are being oppressed and abused and mistreated, if you ask the abusers why why they're doing what they're doing, they can actually give you a narrative shaped by fear and anger that they think justifies this abuse, this violence. Even things like the Rwandan a genocide and the Holocaust have behind them these kinds of narratives. And we've fallen prey to that in this country. And yes, that's I how, mean, that theme is has just, it's just broadened, I would say. Yes, it absolutely is. And But that's how you end up with the largest, you know, the, the highest rate of incarceration in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how you create the most punitive society on the planet. That's how you can hear what we heard in 2001 from the Bureau of Justice, that one in three black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison and do nothing. I think the indifference to that forecast is in some ways just as bad as the forecast itself. But that's a consequence of this larger culture. And I think for me, getting at that, pushing people to step back from fear and anger, getting people to think more critically about this larger legacy of racial inequality 
uh, is the priority now. And that's what led me into the racial justice work that we've been doing Mm -hmm. and this effort at trying to pull apart American history in a new way, in a different way than the way in which we have tended to uh, hear it. Right. As something we have to reckon with, we must reckon with on our way to reckoning with all of that, all of these, these, what in fact are um, consequences. Yeah, and and to understand it differently as well, because Mm -hmm. I actually think none of us was taught um, uh, this history in a way that lent itself to the kind of understanding we need uh, to actually recover, to become a just society. So we we don't learn, most of us. Uh, we're not told that we're a post-genocide society yeah. as elementary school students or high school stu- students. But in fact, I think we are. What we did yeah. to indigenous people when Europeans came to this continent yeah. was a genocide. We yeah. killed millions. Most teachers don't even know how many millions of indigenous people died as a result of famine and war and disease uh, as a consequence of this European colonization. And we haven't acknowledged it. We haven't talked about it. They do it some in Canada. They do it some in Australia. But we haven't done it at all. And instead, we created this narrative of racial difference, which we used to justify the plight of indigenous people, and then use that same narrative uh, to justify two and a half centuries of slavery. And if you don't understand that this was an intentional act to reconcile ourselves with things like genocide, and slavery, you're going to miss an important part of the American story. Mm -hmm. And that's why when I give talks about this, I say the great evil of American slavery wasn't involuntary servitude. It wasn't forced labor. It was this narrative we created that black people aren't as good as white people, that black people are less human. Aren't as human, yeah. Yeah, are less evolved, less capable, less worthy. And that was the essential evil of American slavery that we never tried to address. And and, and part of the reasoning behind that statement that I make, uh, that slavery didn't end, it just evolved, is that when you read the 13th Amendment, it talks about ending involuntary servitude, but says nothing about ending this ideology of white supremacy. Hmm. When you look at the conversations, even abolitionists leading up to the Civil War in the North, many of them didn't believe in racial equality. And so in that environment, uh, what's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is what happened. We, we, you know, the, the North wins the Civil War, but the South wins the narrative war. And black people are barred from exercising the rights and freedoms that they're entitled to because they're seen as not worthy well, or not deserving. Yes, and also, um, it's not like they were... It, the dehumanizing impulse remained, right? Yes. You know, my favorite line of Reinhold Niebuhr is the first line of Nature and Destiny of Man. Man is his own most vexing problem, right? So yeah. we, so, right? And I'm, I would love, I wonder if you and Isabel Wilkerson have know each other and have yeah, had long we, conversations. We, we, did, we have, in I fact. bet you have, because, <laughs> because it's also not as simple as this continued in the South, right? I mean, yes. I'm speaking to you from Minnesota. Yeah. For where George Floyd was killed. And it, it, there's, that shouldn't be a surprise because yeah. the culture was there in the North as in the South. Not the same, but... Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's no place in America you can go and be free from the smog, the contaminants created by our long history of racial inequality. Mm -hmm. Minnesota, Mississippi, New Hampshire, California, anywhere you go, the atmosphere has been corrupted by this long history. And I think 
the lie we were told is that at some point these toxins will dissipate. And the truth is, is that we're dealing with contaminants that are so uh, corruptive that we're going to actually have to clean them. This is not something that just evaporates. We're going to have to do some work to create a healthy environment. And we haven't done that. And the disadvantage (laughs) that we have in the United States compared to countries like South Africa, where there was a tremendous change in power when black South Africans got the vote, they became the majority. Mm-hmm. Right. In Rwanda, there was a military intervention and power shifted. Mm-hmm. The Germans lost the war, yeah. which is why Berlin is a very different experience yeah. than it would have otherwise been. In the United States, there hasn't been that transfer of power. And so the reckoning that has to happen in this country has to be rooted in a moral awareness, a, a moral awakening, uh, a, a consciousness that evolves in a way that we begin to do the things that we must do if we're going to not only save the country, but save ourselves. And this is where, for me, faith traditions become so important. Yeah. Because in the faith tradition I grew up in, uh, you can't come into the church and say, oh, I want salvation and redemption and all the good stuff, but I don't want to admit to anything bad. I don't want to have to talk about anything bad that I've done. The preachers will tell you it doesn't work like that. You've got to first repent And you've got to confess. And they try to make you understand that that repentance and confession isn't something you should fear, but something you should embrace. Because what it does is open up the possibility of redemption and salvation. And we kind of have a very religious society where we talk about these concepts on Sundays, on Saturdays, (laughs) and whatever. But we haven't haven't embraced them. We haven't employed them in our collective lives. And I think that has to change. Yeah. Yeah. So so this is where... I see you having played a role, having a voice that is so important, and I'm not sure that people point this out to you, um, you know, bringing a word like mercy, um, using the language of redemption. Uh, you know, this this is significant because, you know, because I think, just, you know, you went to law school because I, you and I are about the same age. Like, that's how you were going to change the world, right? Yeah. Changing yeah. legal structures. And, and Isabel Wilkerson and I have had this conversation, like, we changed the laws again and again, but we didn't change ourselves. Yeah. And, I mean, here's something you wrote, and I'm pretty sure this is from Just Mercy, um, which gets at this, the, the life-giving possibility in us picking this up, right? You said we are we are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, a nation. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair, until we all suffer from the absence of mercy, and we condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. Um, you also you end this by saying we all need justice. You said the closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, but I think in wider and wider circles we see this. Yeah. It's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy, we all need justice, and perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. I really believe that. Yeah, mm. I really do. And, and I think for me it makes it easier when I have to challenge people, when I have to go into places where there's a lot of hostility, where there's a lot of resistance, where people look at you as if you're evil, they hate, it makes it easier because I've never thought what I do, I do just for my clients, or I'm doing just for the people who I represent. 
or the people who know I care about them. I, I've always felt like uh, my work, our work, is for everybody. That is, you know, we're trying to save everyone from the corruption, from the agony of living lives where there is no mercy, where there is no grace, where mm-hmm. there is no justice, where we are indifferent to suffering. Those kinds of lives ultimately leave lead to violence and, and animosity and bigotry. And and I don't want that for anybody, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I do talk a lot, obviously, about my clients. Those are the people I have to advocate for. And when I, when I say that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done, I, I'm thinking specifically about them, but I'm also thinking about everybody else. I mean, I believe that for every human being, I think if someone tells a lie, they're not just a liar, that if someone right. takes something, they're not just a thief. If you kill someone, you're not just a killer. But it's also true, a nation that um, committed genocide against indigenous people, a nation that enslaved black people for two and a half centuries, a nation that tolerated mob lynchings for nearly a century, a nation that created apartheid and segregation laws throughout most of the 20th century, can also be more than that racist that worst thing we suggests. did. You always say that, that none thing. of us is defined by the way. Exactly. Thing we did. Yeah. And and that's the that's the reason why we ought to find the courage mm-hmm. to acknowledge the wrongfulness of those things so that we can then embrace what's right, what's corrective, what's redemptive, what's restorative. Yeah. And I do want that for everyone. Yeah. So, you know, you you gave um you gave the commencement address at, at at Harvard Law School, your your alma mater, which I think you said you'd never turned up to graduation when you actually graduated from there. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you, were, you were off pursuing your found vocation. Yes, exactly. I feel like you you offered some. Um, you know, it's such a th- it's the, isn't it America? It's such a funny. I mean, I bet you get in conversations like this all the time too. Like people say, "What do I do?" Right? So give me a give me a tip, right? Or what's the first step? <laughs> <laughs> and but you did actually lay out a four point program, which I think is helpful. Um, uh, understanding that this is not a four point program for what you do this week, but stepping onto that long arc of the moral universe, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And the first part is about staying proximate. I mean, your your grandmother again. Yeah. You can't said to you, you can't understand the most important things from a distance. Brian, you have to get close. Yeah. And for me, it is an important idea. It's interesting because in science and in research, proximity is baked in to the very heart of the discipline. Yeah. If we create a vaccine for, for COVID, if we create a cure uh, for this virus, it's because the researchers and scientists understand uh, the details of this virus with such precision and clarity mm. that they've been able to create an answer. Uh, you know, innovation comes in science by the people who are able to pull something apart with such insight and knowledge that they can then innovate and they can create new. It's how we make progress. And I think the same is true in the justice sector, that we cannot make progress in creating a more just society, healthier communities, if we allow ourselves to be disconnected from the people who are most vulnerable, from the poor, the neglected, the incarcerated, the condemned. If you're trying to make policies uh, in the criminal justice space, but have never met someone who's in a jail or prison, you mm-hmm. haven't been to a jail or prison, you're going to fail. And so it is important for me to emphasize this concept 
And again, my grandmother did have kind of a wisdom into that. I think I told the Harvard students that when I was 10, she started doing this thing because integration had come and she was worried. Mm. And she started coming up to me and giving me these hugs and she'd squeeze me so tightly, I thought she was trying to hurt me. Mm -hmm. And then she'd see me an hour later and she'd say, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? Mm -hmm. And if I said no, she would jump on me again. And by the time I was 10, she had taught me whenever I would see her, the first thing I would say is, Mama, I always feel you hugging me. Mm. And she'd smile the smile. And, you know, she worked as a domestic her whole life. She lived into her 90s. Uh, She fell when she got in her 90s. She broke her hip. Mm. And then she was diagnosed with cancer. And I was in college when she was dying. And I remember going to her and, and, and sitting next to her and her eyes were closed and wasn't clear she could hear what I was saying when I was holding her hand. And I was just pouring my heart out. And I knew it was time to leave, and I stood up to leave. And just as I took a step, she squeezed my hand, opened her eyes, and she looked at me. And the last thing she said to me, she said, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? Mm -hmm. And then she Mm -hmm. said, I want you to know I'm always going to be hugging you. And there have absolutely been times in my life when I have felt the embrace Mm -hmm. of my grandmother. But for me, it's even more than that. I think sometimes when you're trying to do justice work, when you're trying to make a difference, when you're trying to change the world, the the thing you need to do is get close enough to people who are falling down, get close enough to people who are suffering, close enough to people who are in pain, who've been discarded and disfavored, to get close enough to wrap your arms around them and affirm their humanity and their dignity. And that's why whether you graduate from Harvard Law School, you graduate from college, whether you're a social worker or a teacher, you should not underestimate the power you have to affirm the humanity and dignity of the people who are around you. Mm -hmm. And when you do that. They will teach you something Hmm. about what you need to learn about human dignity, but also what you can do to be a change agent. They will. They will show you. Yeah. Yes, they will absolutely show you. Proximity will reveal the. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, another of your of your pieces of counsel is be willing to do inconvenient and uncomfortable things, which which may also entail getting what feels like unsafe. And I. We are so segregated in so many ways in this society, so thrust together with people who are like us, um, that I feel like getting proximate in this culture um, may often mean getting uncomfortable. Absolutely. And inconvenience. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it requires a kind of intentionality. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is the reason why... I emphasize this sometimes when I talk. I say, I think you have to make a decision uh, to do the uncomfortable things. I mean, human beings are biologically programmed uh, to do what's comfortable. Yeah. We do what's convenient. Yeah, it's just how we get through it. Yeah. yeah. Which means that to do something uncomfortable or inconvenient, we're going to have to make a choice. We're going to have to make a decision to do what everything around us is telling us we shouldn't do. But it is that process that yields... Uh, progress. I mean, athletes understand this. I mean, you can't mm-hmm. say I want to be a great basketball player, but not spend hundreds of hours in a gym uh, perfecting a shot or perfecting your skills. I mean, every great performer understands that the path to greatness requires uh, an uncomfortable commitment, sometimes even a preoccupation with the skills uh, necessary uh, to deliver the artistry that you want to deliver. 
And I just think the same is true when we're trying to increase the health quotient, increase the justice quotient in the communities where we live. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious how you think about the year 2020, which we are <laughs> in, which is drawing to a close. Although in this year, 2020, I'd, if you told me this year will never, <laughs> never end, I would believe you because who knows what will happen next. Um, what, 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 what shifted for you this? What, what do you did? How, how? And it, I think it's it's too early to ask this question. Honestly, we we I would love to I would love to know what some historian will see when they look back at twenty twenty a hundred years from now. Um, but what shifted? What changed this year? Or, or you know, or what shifts might? Um, have created a, a slightly different foundation for us to walk forward on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I do think this has been uh, an extraordinary year with a lot of extraordinary elements. I mean, uh, first of all, a global pandemic yeah. is not something that any of us could have anticipated. And, and um, you know, it's disruptive and unsettling and unnerving. And then how you make decisions in the face of this incomplete information is stressful. And so the pandemic alone yeah. was enough to kind of royal the world, and it has. But when you add to that uh, this heightened level of fear and anger, this polarizing um, political discourse that I think has been really injurious to everyone, I think we, we all have felt injured by the absence of community, the absence of connectedness at a time of crisis. You know, it, it just became painful. And then you throw into that the enduring legacy of this history of racial injustice and police yeah. violence and all of that. Um, I, I think this has absolutely been an extraordinary year. I think of 1968 mm. and I think of 1955. Mm. Because in many mm-hmm. ways, 1955 was also a really extraordinary year in the 20th century on the heels of Brown versus Board of Education, the most disruptive a Supreme Court decision of the century that was going to change relationships all over the country and that generated a lot of conflict, right? The National Guard were called out uh, to protect little black children trying to go to school. And you had governors standing in schoolhouse doors saying no. And people, it was a really, really intense and, and challenging time. And I think about the people in this community where I live, the, the black people who found the courage to put on their Sunday best and go places to advocate for civil rights and equal justice. And they went to these places knowing that they would get beaten and battered and bloodied, but they went anyway. And I think about 1955 as a year of uh, transformation. And what happens after 1955, I think, was really extraordinarily important, positive. We started to do some things that were long overdue. We began to see the emergence 
of a move towards civil rights and racial equality and what came after that was the growing consciousness about the rights of women. I think some really yeah. incredible <laughs> things you know, Everything happened. flowed out of that, yeah. Exactly. And, it yeah. Went, and it's not because it was, a, it was a peaceful time. We had Vietnam, no. we had all these other challenges, but some really extraordinarily positive things happened yeah. and life did not go, life never was the same after 1955. Then comes 1968, this year of horrific violence the assassination of Dr. King, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, unrest in cities, uh, a raging war, uh, an ascendant political uh, movement that is uh, regressive and and uh, uh, organized around fear and anger. And uh, we did not have uh, a good uh, 10 years following that eventful year. Mm-hmm. And I think the question for us now is, is 2020 going to be more like 1955 or is it going to be more like 1968? Mm. Are we going to learn from what we have seen this year, what we have discovered about our inability to provide health care to the most vulnerable, what we've discovered about our inability to protect uh, people uh, who are very much at risk, uh, what we've discovered about our continuing struggle to overcome this history of racial inequality, what we've discovered about the political divide and the absence of community in so many spaces where we are deeply divided, are we going to respond to that with a kind of engagement yeah. that I think characterized the late 50s and early 60s from all sectors? Yeah. Or are we going to retreat into that kind of hostile, reactionary, violent resistance to change that I think we saw after 1968? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I certainly hope uh, that we can have a decade of progress. I mean, that's certainly what I'm working on here at EJI. We're calling for an era of truth and justice. We really believe that mm-hmm. this is the time for institutions and communities and and uh, schools and uh, banks and insurance companies and hospitals to engage in truth-telling about our past so that we might get to the kind of just society that we believe in. Uh, and it will, you know, it will begin. It will begin... Uh, uh, in another few weeks, and yeah. what will 2021 tell us about the direction of uh, this country and the rest of the world in response to this uh, incredibly challenging year? Yeah, I'm. I'm so relieved that the election is over. I mean, I mean, just setting aside um, act- the actual details of the election, <laughs> just <laughs> which are significant, but but also because I just feel like 2020, you know, March, April, May just those months alone, it laid out so much for us to just dig into for the yeah. rest of our lives, right? I yeah. mean, starting with starting with being forced as a society to distinguish between what is essential and non-essential and then right. seeing, really right. seeing that what we deem to be essential, we do not value, do not reward. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 and then I also feel like you know what happened to George Floyd in this city was not new, right? And it's happened since. But yeah. there was this softening, I think. I mean, it's, that meant that more people saw that mm-hmm. there was an awakening um, with edit with it had a new quality. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I hope that we get we get to now dig into all of those things. We've kept getting distracted from them. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think this is a year that has made it harder for people to say, I didn't know. 
Yes, right? yes. Um, when you look at the impact of COVID on poor and minority communities, you, you can't say, I didn't know mm-hmm. that there are a lot of people in this country who who don't have access to health care, who are living in conditions and structures and systems that make them really vulnerable if a virus or a disease breaks out. Uh, you watch that devastating video of George Floyd being murdered, mm-hmm. and you can't say, I didn't and know. And you can't say, really, you can't say you didn't see it, because everybody was yeah, home. Yeah, I don't a- absolutely, know. Yeah. absolutely. And there, there are other examples of that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you look at the political discourse, and... Um, and you can't claim that you didn't know there was this divide. You didn't know there was this impulse and instinct for violent resistance to to change. And so that is the beginning of possibility and change is yeah. awareness. Yeah. And uh, I've been saying over and over again, and this is part of what you know we're acting on at EJI, I think that learning is an action item. You know, people say, what can I do? What can I do? Mm. And I tell them, you need to learn mm-hmm. this history. You need to understand how we got where we are. And that has to be an activity that we embrace. Uh, or otherwise, our actions will be uninformed. And we're going to think we're making a good choice or helping when, in fact, we're just replicating bad choices that have been made over and over again. Yeah, I, I really like you honoring learning. Um, I feel like, um, again, we're so action-oriented in this culture, um, but action without discernment can just waste time, right? And you, Absolutely. And I, you know, I feel like there's been a little bit of, there have been a lot of people reading books they hadn't read before. Yeah. And, and then I hear some people saying, you know, don't just read books. <laughs> and I mean, like, it's not an either-or, but I, li- I like you holding that up and witnessing that and, and, and affirming it. Because it's a well, piece I of th- the story. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, on a lot of these issues, I mean, issues like policing, for example, if you don't know this history, if you don't know how the police stepped aside and allowed mobs to lynch black people during the first half of the 20th century, how the police were complicit in some of these massacres that took place in communities around the country, um, if you haven't seen the video where John Lewis and and these mm, yeah. peaceful protesters are being battered on the Eben Pettus Bridge, not by the Proud Boys, not by white supremacists, but by uniform state troopers. Yeah. If you don't understand the optics, if you don't understand that history, you're going to misjudge the reaction to uh, police violence today, to that video of George Floyd. Uh, and these other videos that we've had to see. And you have to understand the context to understand the nature of the problem. And the same is true for so many other things. You know, part of the reason I didn't really want to write a book, I just it just didn't seem like a, a good use of time. Uh, but I, I became persuaded that we weren't going to have an impact on criminal justice um, if we didn't get more people to see what we see, to understand what we understand about what's happening. And that's why I felt it was necessary to bring people in with me into jails and prisons where you meet 13- and 14-year-old children cowering in a corner because they've been abused by adults for three nights in a row, Hmm. or to meet uh, women who have been condemned to die in prison simply because they're poor and they had a miscarriage. And that kind of knowledge does change the way you talk. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you act. And that's why I absolutely want to honor learning in this moment. Yeah, that gives also back to proximity, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. It you does. Let the learning lead you to proximity. 
Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Because that's the other thing that comes out of proximity. The other thing I talk about is mm-hmm. is I, I, you have to be hopeful, and and I and I do think that's important in this moment as well, because there's so much that we see that is dispiriting. Uh, we do these web articles at EGI. We post stuff. And uh, we do a daily calendar thing. And I was just working on one today about some of these um, uh, comments by law enforcement officers over the last couple of weeks. And I I just find it heartbreaking. We had a police uh, officer in Alabama say, uh, join me. I'm going to Washington. I'm going to shoot Democrats. I'm going to kill these socialists, and we're not going to leave any survivors. And some of this rhetoric, there was a police officer in Wilmington, North Carolina, that that welcomed a, a war, and he couldn't wait to kill black people. And you read some of this stuff, and it's so disheartening to imagine that we have people who carry those kinds of sentiments in positions like that. Yeah. But I do think it's important that we stay hopeful about our capacity to overcome that bigotry. And and I am persuaded that hopelessness is the enemy of justice, that if mm. we allow ourselves mm. to become hopeless, we become part of the problem. I think you're either hopeful or you're the problem. There's no neutral place. Injustice prevails where hopelessness persists. And if I've inherited anything from the generation who came before me, I have inherited their uh, wisdom about the necessity of hope. I think you uh, meant justice prevails where hopefulness p- persists. Is that what you... I, I, injustice prevails. Injustice prevails where, where hopelessness... hopelessness yes. persists. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's a lawyerly way of saying something <laughs> that should be said a lot. Okay. But, but, but I say it that way only because yeah. we've been dealing with injustice in so many places for so long. Mm-hmm. And if you try to dissect why is this still here, it's because people haven't had enough hope and confidence to believe that we can do something better. Mm-hmm. And I, I am, I am, you know, I think hope is our superpower. Mm-hmm. I mean, hope is mm-hmm. the thing that gets you to stand up when others say sit down. Right. It's the thing that gets you to speak when others say be quiet. I never met a lawyer until I got to Harvard Law School. I had to hope I could be something I'd actually never seen anybody like right. me be. Right. You know, we built this museum in Memorial. <laughs> I didn't know anything about museums in Memorial, but I had this kind of idea that we could create a space that might be a truth-telling space that might help people reckon with this past. And and because we had this hope, you know, even starting an organization like this in a place like this, it, it, it didn't make sense if there wasn't a hope dynamic pushing you. And I think we have to have that. I get worried when I meet hopeless teachers or hopeless mm-hmm. lawyers mm-hmm. or hopeless politicians or hopeless advocates. Mm-hmm. Those are people who are not going to help us advance justice in the world. You know, the other, um, the other thing to say about that, or one other thing to say about the, the, the example you gave of the, the people who are the most hateful and, and the most consumed, right, yeah. by that fear and anger so that they have become it. They're the ones who get quoted in the newspaper, right? Yeah. They're yeah. not, they represent an extreme. And I, I think like, so, you know, for me, one of the one of the humbling things, one of the many humbling things about this year is, you know, really, really knowing myself to be white and interrogating what that means. And mm-hmm. I insist on using the language of we Thinking mm-hmm. about that long arc because our yeah. descendants are going to see a we and us, yeah. but yeah. but the white we has a lot of work to do in this country, right? And it's 
it's easy to um, for people to who feel I don't know a little bit more enlightened. Like it's easy for white people to start pointing at the bad white people, like that sure. person you just mentioned. Sure. And that doesn't get us anywhere it because we all it, have work to do. And so I, I'm curious about how you apply what you learned on death row <laughs> or working with 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 people who who are who are criminals or being treated as criminals by our justice system that none of us is defined by our worst actions i feel like that is such an important uh equation for our common life right now yeah well i i i think you're absolutely right and and i am more interested in what the we does, what the collective we does, than mm-hmm. what the outliers do. And I think one of the challenges of, of this era of social media is that everybody has a platform, and, and we do tend to highlight and emphasize the extreme voices and perspectives. I think the media does that. I think the larger culture kind of runs to that. But I, I, I do think it's important to push back against that, even as we think about how to repair much of the damage that has been done. There was a, you know, during the 1950s and 60s, you had all of these uh, people engaging in horrific criminal acts. The 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 white men who killed Emmett Till, who yeah. killed the civil rights workers in Selma, who uh, burnt, blew up the church. And 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 20, 30 years later, we thought that. The response to that should be, we should go prosecute those people. And then we had these prosecutions of older white men in the 80s or 90s who were Klan members. And we thought that if we convicted them, that we could exonerate the society. And it's I'm not opposed to, to those convictions or to those prosecutions. But I think it's a, mis, it's, it's a mistake to think that they acted uh, in a setting where only they were culpable it was the politicians who gave permission to people to talk and think and believe these thoughts. It's the larger uh, we who created an environment where we were saying segregation forever. And just as then uh, we are now, when we give in to rhetoric and we start talking about using violence to silence those whose positions and opinions we disagree with, when we Mm -hmm. engage in rhetoric that tries to legitimate the conduct of people who are advancing ideologies that are destructive and violent and bigoted, we become complicit and we have to understand that. And it's not just the people who have power, the elected officials, it's everybody else because we give those people the power that they have. And uh, in our museum, we really thought about this. you know, because when I started talking about enslavement, the first thing you'd say is, well, my people never owned slaves, as if somehow that exonerates them. And mm-hmm. what you encounter in our museum is all the all the trades, all of the collateral benefits that people in this region experience through the slave trade. The hotel operators, the banks, the railroads right. were all profiting from the slave trade, and the heirs of those profits didn't have to actually own slaves to benefit from enslavement. And the same is true from the era of lynching, right? The political consequences of driving six million black people out of the Deep South into uh, the margins of communities in the North and West are evident in the political uh, uh, contours of our society today. The legacy of segregation, right? Yeah. Uh, and we just we try to run from it. I didn't do that, 
But in fact, you did. And just like I can't be uh, removed from the challenges that are being created by uh, the environmental corruption that we are witnessing in the world, our continuing yeah. degradation of the planet. I can't say, well, it's not me. Yeah. I do this with my garbage. I can't do that. Well, you, I have to yeah. own that. And you especially can't do it if the goal is not just the punitive or just getting justice right. in a narrow sense, if the goal right. is repair and repentance right. and redemption. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And in fact, what you ought to be doing is thinking about, okay, in what ways am I contributed to this? We have a project that we're starting. It's called the Truth and Justice Project. And we're actually going to be working with institutions, asking them to focus on their institution, mm-hmm. to kind of step back, mm-hmm. put aside all the global stuff. And it began really in 2018 when we were opening the memorial. Uh, the local newspaper, the Montgomery Advertiser, was kind of complaining a little bit. They said, oh, we know you're going to talk to the New York Times and the Washington Post and all of these other, <laughs> but you won't talk to us. And I said, well, let's have a conversation about that. And we showed them their coverage, uh, their media, mm. their coverage of lynchings that took place in this area mm. early in the 20th century. Mm. And you read it, and it breaks your heart. They were absolutely encouraging this violence. They were contributing to the mindset that said we should pull this person out of a jail and hang them. They were culpable for the very lynchings we were confronting in 2018 through the opening of this memorial. And I said, if you ask me, why don't I trust you? It's rooted in my knowledge of this history. And we started a dialogue, and, you know, the editor didn't know about any of that stuff. But when he confronted, he says, you know what? We have to apologize. I said, I think that Mm -hmm. would be really powerful. And on the opening, they did this massive headline, massive front page, a whole uh, edition dedicated to apologizing for their role in contributing to racial terror lynchings in this community. And it was really powerful. And I thought, uh, well, after the Montgomery Advertiser did this, Lots of newspapers are going to do that. And the truth is, nobody else did it. And that's because that instinct to not tell the truth if you don't have to, to not confront these problems is so powerful. But this project that we're doing is a project that is going to encourage these institutions to do exactly what the advertiser did in that setting. You know, we have banks that denied mortgages and loans to black veterans after World War II and created the wealth gap that we still see today. And I think they need to own that. We have institutions in this country that refuse to uh, provide coverage on insurance claims when black people were forced off their lands as a result of racial violence. And I think we need to own that. We've got real. Oh, yeah, there's so much. I think of Marilyn Nelson. Do you know her, the poet? She She's like yes. been working with a church yes. in Connecticut, yes. a church yeah. in Connecticut that's going that's right. back to their original documents and how yeah. how many slaves the, the pastor owned. But... Um, yeah, I, I love this. I think this is a move. We you know we just we did something just a couple of weeks ago with John Bewin just talking about you know and he grew up in Minnesota, talking about being white and and just interrogating the history of your town. Yes. And in fact, you know the history of his town is where the greatest massacre in American history came of of um, of Indian yeah. tribal peoples signed by uh, you know set forth by Abraham Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War, and uh, and just but but just uncovering that right just as we would in a family yeah. if we wanted to heal our family right yeah. we would yeah. start to tell the truth 
Yeah, yeah. About what really happened. Absolutely. And it's the way we get better. You know, I think about um, mental health care and treatment in the middle of the 20th century, where if someone was the, a victim of, of uh, child abuse or sexual abuse, there were a lot of therapists that would say, well, don't talk about it, don't think about it. And there was this idea that you're just supposed to just kind of swallow it and keep moving. And what we learned is that it wasn't healthy. No. It, you, you, don't, you can't recover that way. And the paradigm shifted. And now in most therapeutic settings, we recognize that the path to healing the path to, to better health is a path that requires that we talk about the things that have victimized us, talk about the things that have traumatized us. Yeah. You know, 12-step yeah. programs yeah. are built on this idea that first you have to acknowledge Confession. the problem. Yeah. Confession. Yeah. Yeah. I am an alcoholic. If yeah. you're unwilling to say that, yeah. uh, AA can't help you. Yeah. And uh, we are a society that has been racially unjust. Mm-hmm. We have done horrible, and we have to be willing. We haven't even said it out loud. We haven't said it out (laughs) loud. Part of the idea for the museum was, you know, I went to the Holocaust Museum. You get to the end of that. It's a narrative museum, and we don't have many cultural spaces in this country Mm -hmm. that I defined as narrative spaces. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Holocaust Museum is an exception, and when you get to the end of the Holocaust Museum, you're motivated to say, never again, regardless of what your background is. I've heard so many people who speak about coming um, to your museum, to the to the to the lynching. Do you call it the lynching museum? I mean, that well, yeah, the it's legacy. Actually, <laughs> it's actually two institutions. There's the so memorial, people, right? And there's yeah, the, so, yeah, yeah. So the National Memorial for Peace and Justice is the institution that honors victims of lynching. Mm-hmm. The Legacy Museum is actually the institution that and tells the story. Enslavement to mass incarceration. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But people speak about that the way they speak about making a pilgrimage. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, that's really important. I think the journey is important. And um, that's what excites me about the moment we're in. We have been using this downtime to really imagine mm. new exhibits. Mm-hmm. And we've got a whole bunch of stuff we want to show the world when, when we are post-COVID. And I do think those experiences can be transformative. You know, going to the Apartheid Museum in, in Johannesburg uh, the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin were transformative experiences for me. Yeah. And uh, I think this country needs that kind of transformation, that kind of reckoning. And unfortunately, we've made it harder than it needs to be. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we can't do it. Yeah. And that's certainly what we're trying to achieve in our spaces. So um, one of the weird things about the world right now is that I'm in my basement and I don't have a clock right here, which I would have in the <laughs> studio. So can you tell me what time it is? I think we are at... 310, Three 10 t- after the hour. 310. Okay, so can we keep going for 15 minutes or so? Sure. Okay, all right. Um, so I know that when that you grew up in Delaware yeah. with lots of Confederate flags flying and, and probably <laughs> nobody talking about it. I mean, nobody yeah. nobody even noting it. It was... and. Um, and of course, here we are, and this is and one of the interesting things about 2020, um, you know, monuments and names uh, are being called into question, and mm-hmm. and some and changing and coming down to some extent. I, you know, what I'd love to to hear from you is what what do we put in their place? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I I, I think. Nothing would be better than something that destroys a sense of 
of community pride and community engagement and health. Um, but I actually think we should be thinking about uh, replacement. Um, but I, I think the first priority is to remove the iconic assaults that take place all across this country. I mean, I moved to Montgomery in the 1980s. There were 59 markers and memorials to the Confederacy, and mm. you couldn't find the word slave, slavery, or enslavement anywhere in this mm. city. And it's just right. painful to live in a place like that. And the irony is, this is a majority black city. And so I think uh, cleaning the environment, creating a healthier environment by removing this kind of iconography is its own step toward progress. And, and I, I just think we have underestimated the damage that is done by signaling this very confused uh, orientation to our history. And that's, you know, I, and it's just, again, I, I refer to, to Germany a lot because I've been there a few times and yeah. there are no Adolf Hitler statues in Germany. It would be yeah. unconscionable if someone tried to put up a marker or a memorial to honor the architects of the Third Reich or the Holocaust. No one could justify that with any kind of credibility. You wouldn't say, oh, we need them up there so we don't forget the history. No one would right, say that. Right. And so I think that has to be its own um, accomplishment, is removing these things. But I do think we should be uh, replacing them with um, totems and symbols that help us understand our capacity to do better. We actually have a memo. We've identified white Southerners who were adamantly opposed to slavery, who were trying to eliminate that institution before the Civil War. Mm. Uh, there are white Southerners that uh, were deeply troubled by the lynchings and, and tried to stop them. There were obviously white Southerners mm. who, were, who disagreed with segregation. It's also a story we don't tell. No, it's a story. And, and if I, if I you know, read out the names of some of these people, nobody would say, oh, I've heard of them. Yeah. They're, they're names we don't know. And, and it's interesting because... Why I think we do need to honor the contributions of black and brown people in this country, which are largely absent. We could also name some streets after these white Southerners who did something honorable, and then we could all celebrate the honorable thing they did. Mm -hmm. They stood against enslavement when the rest of the region was intensely committed to it. They stood against lynchings. They stood against segregation because they understood the wrongfulness of racial hierarchy, and they did it in 1945. Now, that's a courageous, honorable person, and it doesn't matter whether you're black or white or brown, immigrant, born here, whatever. You can acknowledge the courage that took and honor that person for what they did. Hmm. And that's the, that's the opportunity we have uh, with new icons, with new totems. But, uh, but I don't want to understate the importance and value of uh, uh, eliminating the iconography that continues to burden and oppress and victimize and taunt so many of us who have to uh, navigate uh, this, these silent threats that yeah. I, I think these symbols represent. Yeah. You know, there's a story you, you tell that I just, I love about um, when Rosa Parks used to come to town yeah. from Detroit and she had some <laughs> friends there and you knew these women and they would, oh, one of them was Johnny Carr, I guess the driving force behind the Montgomery bus boycott and, yeah. um, and they would invite you, not necessarily to take part, but to listen. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that Rosa Parks asked you at some point about to tell tell her about the Equal Justice Initiative, and yeah, yeah what did she say? What did yeah? Well, you know, I I was I was really yeah. privileged to be nurtured by this community of of mostly women who had been so staunch and resolute mm-hmm. uh, to to justice, and and yes, Miss Carr invited me to go over to um, a woman named Virginia Durr. Virginia Durr was a white woman whose husband Clifford Durr had represented Dr. King, and she lived in a part of Montgomery called Cloverdale. Okay. And uh, and Miss Carr told me Miss Parks was coming to town, and she said, "Do you want to come over and just listen?" <laughs> and I said, "Of course." And then every now and then she would do this. She'd say, "Now, Brian, what does the word listen mean?" And I'd have to explain that I knew I wasn't supposed to say anything. And I remember that day so clearly. I sat out on Ms. Durr's porch with Rosa Parks and Ms. Carr, and they just talked and talked and talked. And the, the unbelievable thing about their conversation was that none of them were talking about all the extraordinary things they had done in the 50s and 60s and 70s. You know, when Ms. Parks left Montgomery, she went on to work with John Conyers. She went on to do a lot of work in the social justice movement. She was involved with Malcolm X. She was involved with a lot of people trying to advance racial equality after Montgomery. But they weren't talking about any of those things. They were all talking about the things they still wanted to do. And there was Uh this hopefulness in their conversation. And it was so powerful. And I just sat there soaking it in. And so when she turned to me and said, okay, Brian, now tell me about the Equal Justice Initiative. Tell you what you're trying to do. I mean, the first thing I had to do was look at Ms. Carr to see if I had permission to speak. And she nodded. (laughs) And then it just came just tumbling out of me. I started giving Ms. Parks my rap. I said, well, we're trying to end the death penalty. We're trying to help people on death row. We're trying to challenge conditions of confinement. We're trying to help the mentally ill. We're trying to help children. We're trying to help the poor. I was just throwing all of these things out. Mm. And when I finished giving her my rap, she looked at me and she just said, mm, mm, mm. that's going to make you tired, tired, tired. <laughs> and Ms. Carr leaned forward and she said, that's why you've got to be brave, brave, brave. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget it because I do think in many ways what these women taught me was the necessity of courage uh, if you're going to advance justice, if you're going to be even a complete human being. Sometimes it takes courage to love, to just be who mm-hmm. you should be to the people you care about. And I I value that about um, uh, the people who have made my work so much um, made my work possible. I have never I've never been confused about the fact that I'm standing on the shoulders of people who did so much more with so much less. And I think a lot about courage, about what it means uh, to be brave, um, to kind of go into spaces that you haven't been invited to go, where you haven't been welcomed, to push on things that people don't want you to push on. And and um, if if I learned anything from people like Mrs. Parks and Mrs. Carr, is this, this necessity to be courageous and brave if you're going to if you're going to help people get to justice. But I guess, you know, you are legendarily hardworking, uh, dedicated, devoted to to your vocation, which is what I want to call it. Um, <laughs> um, how do you stay brave? Right? How does that, how do you, how do you nurture that in yourself? Because I know, you know, you, you there's a moment in, 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 and you, you speak about this, about like realizing, you know, being, was it, was it a, you were, you were, you were, I think, at the execution of, of yeah, someone, yeah, Jimmy Dill. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, Am I remembering that's that right? right? Yeah, and, that's right. Um, that's I can't right. see my notes, but um, 
thinking, thinking and dwelling on reasonably the brokenness all around you and the system yeah. and the people, and then understanding that that brokenness was in you and that in some way that 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 doesn't make a lot of rational sense. That that realization was part of what kept you connected and kept you going. Yeah. I, I do think what sustains me is this knowledge I have that it's really the broken among us that can contribute a lot to our quest for full equal justice. I mean, when you're broken, you actually uh, appreciate, you know something about what it means to be human. You you know something mm-hmm. about grace. You learn something about mercy. You learn something about forgiveness. It's the broken among us that can teach us some things. And knowing that you don't have to be perfect and complete gives you a way of moving through challenge that will be hard if you think that that's not something that's possible. And so, you know, I tell my young staff, um, mm. you can't do this work. You can't be in some of the painful places we're in. You can't hold children who've been abused and not be impacted by that. You're going to shed some tears. You are. And you're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to get tired. You're going to get pushed down. All of those things are going to happen. And it doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean that you're not up to the task. It doesn't mean you're incompetent or incapable. It just means you're a human being. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want. I want human beings. Mm-hmm. And so what sustains me is, in part, this knowledge that, um, you know, I, I, I can't always uh, feel confident and sure and, and clear that there are going to be times when it's uncertain what's going to happen. And I and I've tried to appreciate that. And once you recognize that, it doesn't make it necessarily easier to cope with, but it mm. it allows you to kind of have a perspective on what you're doing. And I do think, for me, looking back and understanding uh, the legacy that I've inherited, you know, I talk a lot about enslavement and lynching and segregation, yeah. but the kind of strength it took, I mentioned my great-grandfather who had the, the, the vision, the wisdom, the courage to learn to read while enslaved. Yeah. That's part of the legacy, the strength it took uh, to bring love into the world, to love somebody in the face of oppression and brutality and enslavement, the strength and courage it took, you know, to, to, to create a family with 10 children amidst incredible challenges, economic and political, um, you know, the courage it took uh, to go into debt to buy something that everybody else questioned, like the World Book Encyclopedia for right. your children. Right. And and that's part of what I think um, sustains me. And I do feel at times lifted up by the spirit of people who have endured way more. You know, I talked to John Lewis just before he passed away, and it was such an honor knowing him. And, yeah. you know, and I, and I was just saying to him, um, I feel so privileged as a result of what you did. And I, and I told him, I've, I've had hard days. We, you know, I get death threats and all that kind of stuff. But I've never had to say, my, hud is, my head is bloody but not bowed like you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and when you realize that those injuries created spaces um, that some of us could occupy that were a little less violent, you begin to appreciate uh, what you can do and why you shouldn't feel overwhelmed and why you shouldn't feel 
knocked down. When we opened the memorial uh, in 2018, um, I've been talking about this a little bit more. I, it was just such a surreal experience to have 25,000 people come to Montgomery to see these spaces mm. that we had created. Mm. And I wanted everything to be perfect. Uh, we had all of these uh, 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 great thinkers and, and uh, um, civil rights activists and musicians were coming to perform. And on the morning uh, of the uh, dedication at the memorial, it looked like it was going to be it was going to rain. And I'd been just terrified at the idea that it would rain and mess up this experience. And I was so worried about it. And um, people were saying, you can't do anything about the rain. I said, yes, I can. I don't want it to rain. And and it was uh, we were all going to the memorial, which has a, a cover in the inside. And that's where we did the dedication. But the clouds were just getting darker and darker. And just as I was getting ready to stand up to speak, I mean, the, the the clouds just open up and all of a sudden it's a downpour. <laughs> and this thing I had been dreading all of a sudden became something completely different. And I was listening to these raindrops uh, hit the top of this memorial and looking up mm-hmm. at all of these monuments which are dedicated to, to lynching victims. And all of a sudden I had this awareness that this wasn't something I should fear, that this wasn't something I should dread. In that moment, it didn't sound like rain hitting the top of the memorial. It sounded like tears being shed Mm. by the thousands of black people whose lives have never been honored, whose names have never been mentioned. And it sounded like they were shedding tears of joy, (laughs) that there was this moment of reckoning. And that's the gift I think I've been given by this legacy, by this ancestry that celebrates struggling for justice, that honors struggling for justice. And I hold on to that. I do. And it sustains me hmm. in times when I, I, I need it and, uh, and absolutely compels me uh, to keep doing as much as I can. You know, I, I do have to say you, you use the word beauty a lot. Um, I don't know if you've used it so much in this conversation, but I I also have this sense, you know, you see the beauty that comes from what happens to people when they come to the memorial. Yeah. Um, The beauty that comes from truth-telling. Yeah. And I just sense, I sense kind of delving into you that that also sustains you, whether you're even conscious of that or not. Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like that's the great joy of my work is that I find beauty in places where where people think beauty can't exist. Yeah. I've, I've found it on death row. I've found it in the lives of people who've been told that they're, yeah. they're so beyond hope and redemption and purpose that they should be killed. I've I found it in places of extreme poverty. I've found it in places uh, that have gone through incredible challenges as a result of injustice and bigotry. Yeah. And yet there it is. Have you gotten to play the piano more this year in this year of lockdown? Yeah, have yes. you? <laughs> I have. That's been the one upside. Okay. Because good. I've been home every day. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I didn't have a house until about uh, 20 years ago when I decided <laughs> I have to have a piano. So I bought a house so I could get a piano. <laughs> For your piano. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it kind of looks like that if you come to my house. <laughs> but yeah, it's been great because I've been able to play. Uh-huh a lot more without traveling. And it's been a great comfort to me mm. during these really challenging months. Mm. So here's my last question. You know, I think a lot about, you know, what are the callings for this time? Callings, yeah. being alive at this time. And I think there's so many of them. Yeah. Um, I hear one in your phrase, we have to be stone catchers. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I wonder if you would just reflect on what you mean when you say that, and, and what else, if there's a way you would want to expand on callings for this time. Yeah. 
Well, I do think we're at a time when it's just become so easy to judge people in these really harsh and extreme ways. And even people of faith have been pulled into this habit, this instinct for condemning the others who don't share their beliefs and views, for uh, reducing people to their worst act. And I've always been struck uh, by that parable, that scripture, that story uh, where Jesus encounters the woman who has been caught in adultery. Mm -hmm. And what's powerful about it is no one says, oh, she didn't do it. It's not an innocent story. Um, That's not part of it. Uh, And those who are there to judge her say that the law says we should stone her to death. And uh, the scripture reveals that Jesus says, well, let he of you who's without sin cast the first stone. And they're convicted by that because they know that none of them is sinless. And they, one by one, put their stones down and they walk away. And then Jesus says to the woman, go and sin no more. And it's a powerful story about mercy and redemption and grace. And what I've realized is that in this era, I don't think uh, our righteous uh, would put their stones down. I, I think we have <laughs> yeah. too many people who would, despite mm. that mm. exhortation, would still cast the stones. They feel insulated from the the hypocrisy and judgment that that implies. And so I think it's beca- it's incumbent on some of us to intervene, to catch the stones. It doesn't mean mm. that uh, those uh, those vulnerable should be condemned. It just means that some of us are going to have to be stone catchers. And that's the idea that um, I've come to embrace is that just because people won't recognize what the right and just thing is to do, that it's not right and just to cast those stones, doesn't mean that that's the end of the struggle. We have to stand up. We have to step in front of those who are vulnerable Mm. and we have to catch those stones. And I think that is one of the callings for this moment. And I think the other calling for me is that we have to Uh, begin this process of truth-telling, that we have to recognize uh, that um, we can't get well if we don't identify, if we don't diagnose the disease. And we have this instinct for quick fix and quick cure. And uh, if you don't know what's wrong with you, you're not going to know whether the cure that you've been prescribed is sufficient. And I think this process of diagnosing the many ways that we are not healthy is not something we should fear, but something we should embrace. Because once we've done that, I think we have the capacity, the genius, the strength, the ingenuity, the wherewithal to begin to address these maladies, this illness, and emerge as a healthier society, a healthier nation, a healthier place in the world for everyone. Hmm. And that's what animates the work that we're trying to do now. Hmm. Brian, thank you so much. It's been everything I hoped for. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll let you know um, when we're going to air this. I, I, I can't remember when that is, but it'll be pretty soon. And I'm um, okay. just so grateful for your work in the world. You know, the only time I've been to Montgomery is when I came on that uh, congressional pilgrimage with John Lewis oh, um, yeah. in 2013, I think. It was incredible. Oh, okay. An yeah. extraordinary, life-changing experience. But I want to come back the next time to Please see you. Please do. I want absolutely. to see your, I want to be at the memorial in the museum. Yeah. And, well, we absolutely want you to come and see the sites. Yeah. When the world would, when the world changes again. There you go. Yeah. That's right. Blessings to you. Thank you so much. And you as well. Always a thrill talking with you. And uh, thanks so much for yeah. the opportunity.